Okay, well welcome. We will make a, a start for this evening. So thank you for attending what I now realise is um, half term. So thank you both speakers again for attending on what I realise is half term week. Um, I'm Beverly Skeggs from the Atlantic Fellows, the Social and Economic Equity Programme in the International Inequalities Institute here at the LSE. So I'm delighted to have two people, two speakers, who have devoted their lives to the study of inequality in various forms. Very, very important. Um, so tonight's lecture is an absolutely appropriate topic, I feel, for the Inequalities Institute. And they're going to be talking about uh, both their, well, all their books in different ways, but particularly Night March, Alpha's book, where she did a 240-kilometre, 150-mile walk with the Naxalite Maoist guerrillas in India, and I said to her that we need to check the blisters on her feet. <laughs> because really, the scars of doing research are worn on the body. And I think, I'm sure they're still there. This is a phenomenal book, absolutely incredible book, um, that brings ethnography to light. It's a bit of a page-turner, um, which is very unusual for, for many ethnographies, but is one of those incredibly in-depth studies. Um, and um, Alpa will read some extracts from her book and will explain it. Neil has written the most evocative um, novels, and it's, it's really embarrassing that I have them all on my Kindle, <laughs> so I can carry them around with me. But A State of Freedom, which he that we have here, and then The Lives of Others. And The Lives of Others particularly connects to Alpa's book because Supratik, character in The Lives of Others, is very like Jorg Nagy, who is a, a really real-life commander in um, your studies. So we're going to talk about the similarities between them, and at some point, I hope, about the differences between the ethnographic empirical form and the novelistic form, because they both evoke very different moral economies but work in very different genres and in very different spaces. So the, again, highly recommended if you really want to understand the relationships. Both books are phenomenal studies of structural national inequalities as they are lived intimately, as they are lived through friendship, through family structures and through life and death. I mean, you both deal with the incredible violence and the incredible life and death. So, <clears throat> we're going to have extracts from them that will take about 10 minutes. And Neil's going to ask Alpa a lot of questions. I'll intervene at points. You may ask some questions back. Um, we've all been, we, we've been trying to shorten our questions so we don't have too many. And then we'll open it out for the audience to ask questions. There is a hashtag for tonight's um, event, which is LSE. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Yeah, no, yeah. we too. We too. <laughs> well, it's the night march one, and the event will be podcast. Most people who are literally attending this event um, will see it through global media. It's usually at least 10,000 people will be watching and knowing about this. So when you ask questions at the end, do say who you are. That's very important. Um, also, um, because it's a special occasion, 
We're going to have a wine reception afterwards and there will be books outside that will be signed by the authors, which is very nice and very special. So I'm going to kick off with one very, very general, general question. Oh, I'm going to introduce their, all their books first because what I didn't say that's very, very important is how The Lives of other, Others, which was written in 2014, was shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize, the Costa Best Novel Award, and won the RSL Encore Prize for the Best Second Novel and State of Freedom, 2017. And that Neil divides his time between London and the USA, where he teaches at Harvard University. Alper is here and has been all over the place, but Alper's key books are uh, Ground Down by Growth, which is an incredibly important book in this particular economic moment in the shadow of the state and then of course night march you can find all the extra details about them that you want on their websites and there's a huge amount of information so we'll kick off with uh, just a very very general question about context so if i begin with you alpa the context for your book why did you want to march with gorillas um, with hardly any resources, with obviously very, very sore feet. At moments you collapse with very limited uh, breaks for having a pee um, and you were the only woman. You had to be disguised as a man for a serious amount. Why did you want to do that? Um, well, you have to contextualise the march in terms of much longer research that I had been undertaking in Jharkhand and in Eastern India. Um, I had lived with Adivasi communities for, uh, for my doctoral research for um, two and a half years almost in, in total and then the, this latest book is based on one and a half years of living amongst Adivasis in a guerrilla stronghold. And um, I had, uh, when I first started the, the second piece of research, I never thought I'd meet a gorilla. Um, um, but of course, I ended up living in an area which they controlled more or less at the time. Uh, so, and I, over time, I realized they were everywhere in every single household, in every single forest. And so over the time that I spent there, like any anthropologist, I tried to take part in everyday life, um, going to the market with people, collecting firewood with people, um, you know, living, living as one of them. Um, I spent more and more time with the guerrilla armies who were mainly in the forests, uh, trying to understand uh, both the revolutionary leaders but also their foot soldiers. And um, towards the end of my field work, I realized that there's you know, one thing that I hadn't done, which is I hadn't walked with them, uh, or, which is what they do every day, all the time. Uh, and although I'd walked with them in the, in the guerrilla stronghold from one village to another, or you know, sometimes even overnight, I hadn't undertaken you know, those long marches where they, which they need to undertake to get from one state to another, mm -hmm. from one part of the country or to another, across territory they don't control. So, um, yeah, I was going to um, interview a, a, a leader, um, uh, and uh, as it happens with the clandestine movement like this, you, don't, you never know where you're going and how you're going and where you end up, so I ended up interviewing this leader in, in, in Bihar, and, and I ended up in the state-level conference of the, of the guerrilla movement in, in 2010. And then I, when I was there, I realized that there was a platoon that was leaving that conference and going back to the areas where I lived uh, in Jharkhand um, uh, in the guerrilla stronghold. So I basically said, I really want to come with you. Please take me with you. Uh, will you, you know, can, can I come with you? And, um, 
And yeah, and uh, and they took a long time to think about it. Um, but um, one day, yeah, uh, as I talk about in the book, you know, this box arrived with green shoes, and <laughs> I'd come with only sandals. And then I knew that they were they were going to let me go with them. So that's how I ended up um, undertaking this this march. It was completely um, it wasn't planned at all, and and really. Uh, it seems in the march, it's called Night March, but Night March is a metaphor for many other things. So the march is, for me, in many ways, apart from giving you the everyday experience of, of the life and the movement, it's a way of talking uh, about many other issues and introducing you to the characters that I'd met over a much longer period of time. So you uh, knew that history and you knew the space you were occupying. But it, was, it was a pretty awesome adventure. <laughs> it well, was difficult. There was parts when I'm reading it. I don't know about you, Neil. I'm reading it. I'm thinking, how the hell are you ever going to get up and keep going? Yeah, no, there were definitely moments like that. But you know, you when you when you're in those moments, you're just thinking, actually, these guys do it all the time. I'm going to do it now, and then you know, I'm going to come back to London. <laughs> uh, I'm going to go back to London. But um, so what they were undertaking was much more phenomenal than what I was undertaking, and uh, I think that was always kind of important. And also had their support, you know. And there, for me, there were always routes out that I could always leave if I couldn't cope. You know, there was always a way of getting out and just becoming myself and, you know, not, uh, not wearing the guise of a soldier. And um, so there was always going to be a way out. Neil, if we move over to your work, I was going to say your research, because it is research. It's research that's written in a different form. Well, the, in, the, in, in the first novel, which is about the early years of the Naxalite movement, my second novel, Lives of Others, uh, that novel, that, that, the Naxalite movement, which starts in 67, by the time it's 1971 comes around, the Indian state has uh, brutally repressed that, that, that movement, or the Indian state thought it had repressed that movement. Yeah. Yeah. And then, of course, Alpa's book carries on the story of what happened. You know, um, It goes underground and regroups and comes back in a different form. So, um, and I wanted to catch it at two different stages. Uh, uh, both the 60s and 70s stripe of Maoism that I d deal with in Lives of Others. And there's a strand in the new novel, Strait of Freedom, which is about current Maoism in, in India. Although not all the strands in the book are set in contemporary India or exactly contemporary India. Um, uh, I, I, I think the novel must answer, the novel form must answer to certain conditions in the world. So I write about social justice and inequality. I may not be writing about them forever. But I think they're really important things to write about. I think it's the moral duty of the novel to, or the novelist to answer to certain things in the world. Uh, it's highly unfashionable what I do because uh, there's been a turn in the literary world and now the thing that's in white hot raging fashion is uh, uh, autofiction or looking at yourself in the mirror and finding <laughs> yourself endlessly fascinating. I don't find that. I, I'm boring. I don't want to look, at in the, look in the mirror. <laughs> I want to look out through a clear window pane into the world, and that's what I try to do. Um, it's very difficult to, uh, to answer the question why one does what one does. I mean, one can only have retrospective answers at the end of life, I feel. And I'm only three books old, so... Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think why I write about these things. And I wanted to ask Alpa, too, like, why do people revolt? And the answer I can come up with is um, there's a poem by Langston Hughes called uh, uh, Black Harlem. Let, let, let me see if I can, if I remember it. Um, remember it. It's a very short poem. What happens to a dream deferred 
Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun? Or does it fester like a sore and then run? Does it sugar and crust over like a syrupy sweet? Or does it fester and stink like rotten meat? Maybe it just sags like a heavy load? Or does it explode? And I wanted to catch, in, in both books, I wanted to catch the world just before the moment of explosion and while the explosion is happening and the aftermath. And, you know, why, why do people revert? You know, this is the question that I wanted to ask you. These people have everything stacked against them. The whole the odds are stacked against them. They have an incredibly difficult life. They know they can be killed any day and hunted down. The state is a brutal, repressive, uh, uh, killing machine. And the way these people are dealt with, and you're very aware of these dangers, and you write about it all the time. What, what do you think they have invested in making their lives so difficult in order to have a future that is better, and they are not going to live to see the future. It's, it's, it's almost like a belief in an afterlife. You know, Sir Thomas More could go to his death thinking, I'm doing the right thing here because I'm going to have a better life in the next world. Hmm. What is this notion of a next world for people who are fighting, who are going to be just extinguished by the state? Hmm. No, well, so many questions in there, but you know, I mean, uh, what I, um, what is interesting, I think, about the current movement is the multiple different reasons that different people are motivated to take up arms, um, and uh, so you have, you know, you you've you 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 suggested that there's a shift between the the characters like Supratik of your first novel and the 1960s movement and the characters like Millie of your second book, uh, an Adivasi um, uh, woman who, um, whose friend Sony joins the, yes, yes. Uh, joins the Naxalites. Um, but I think there's a continuity too, because characters like Supratik, some of them, um, uh, these who are from high caste, uh, well-to-do backgrounds, okay. middle-class backgrounds, very, you know, usually very educated, yes. Who took up arms in the 60s to change the world? Yes. They had this ideal of communism, uh, a communist society, uh, one that we haven't seen yet. You know, which would be a much more egalitarian world. Um, you know, they thought that the revolution was, you know, going to be just around the corner. Uh, and um, uh, and 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 there are people like that who joined at that time who are still underground, and they are continuing the history of the movement. So many many characters like Supratik were. Either jailed or killed, yes. um, uh, and many left. But and became bankers. Some became bankers. Some yes, became yeah. religious and academics. Yeah, yeah. yeah acad academics. Some sort they are. Yeah, some joined the uh, you know Vedic ashrams and. Um, but um, but there are many who also stayed underground and who carried on the struggle. Um, so there are people like that who are still underground. But over the years, they attracted foot soldiers from vastly different backgrounds. So they attracted in the plains of. Bihar and in um, Andhra Pradesh, uh, many Dalits who, who supported them because they were taking up the cause of the untouchables. They were fighting against the feudal landlords. But um, in the 1990s, as state repression increased, they uh, moved to uh, following Mao and Che Guevara's 
classic kind of guerrilla tactics, they moved into the forests and the hills uh, of central and eastern India. And there they encountered Adivasi people, uh, the tribal populations of India. And over the years, many of these Adivasis um, had joined the movement, uh, joined, joined, joined the guerrillas, and, um, uh, and are now the, um, the main uh, uh, foot soldiers of this, of this movement. Is, is this one of the main differences between uh, uh, 60s uh, Maoism and present-day Maoism? I think 70s Maoism is quite largely a middle-class movement. Uh, urban proletariats, as they used to be called, whereas current contemporary Maoism is a much more grassroots with Adivasi. I think the big difference is that there were, of course, um, a peasants yes, uh, in the seventies who were, yeah. you know, the Naxalbari rebellion was for, by peasants entirely. Yes, exactly, yeah. was yeah. by peasants who took up arms yeah. against the landlords in Naxalbari, uh, but the leadership was always well to do. And yeah. I think the big difference is that at that time there was much more recruitment from the colleges and the universities, yes. and yes. so many of middle class youth were drawn by the romance of the movement and and took up arms, whereas now characters like Supratik, who in my book are characters like Gyanji, mm. they're rare and they're kind of, they don't, they're not attracting the same crowds again. It's mainly the Adivasis who are, who are joining them, and they are joining also for very different reasons yes. to the ideals of the leaders, right. and also within them there is quite a lot of difference in these sort of the central themes of the book, yeah. Has, has yeah. the violence made a difference to this? Because I think what, what you're uh, describing is they have no choice. They're going to die anyway, basically. They're going to starve. Um, so they look for a better future. Whereas your uh, Supratik, the, the key character that we're talking about, is he has hope, he has ideals. He's not driven by despair and poverty. No, he is not driven by despair. He's driven by a kind of idealism. I think the late 60s were a time of unprecedented idealism in, in, in world history where, you know, I think people really thought innocently, it turns out, that they could set the earth rolling in a different direction altogether. Mm. And they failed. And I find that failure quite affecting, actually. I, I find it quite moving. And, and they wanted to change the world, which I think is, you know, what else would you want to do with the world, you know? Mm -hmm. So, uh, uh, except to want to change it. And, 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 you know, you write about it very movingly, too, when you write about your own personal history, which you move in, uh, which you weave in into your book. You say, it seemed important to be trained as an anthropologist as a route to the answers I needed for the making of a better world. These lines just, this line just stood out for me because it can provide the raison d'etre for so, so many. I mean, I, I think I write because I find the question of wanting to change the world very interesting and endlessly rich. I can keep unpacking it for the rest of my life, I feel. So, um, uh, so yes, I suppose 60s is, is idealism. Uh, but then you also have to look at the people who form the backbone of the movement as I said, you know, their lives have become so intolerable that uh, uh, the only way it sort of implodes or uh, explodes in a different direction altogether for change can only take the form of violence or what, 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 what else is there to do? Like what how, I find how... very moving in your book, State of Freedom, is the case of uh, Sony, 
who watched her sister get raped by the forest officials. And, you know, this, in later years, this then, when the Naxalites came across, came into the rural areas, mobilizing people as Samaj Sevaks, you know, uh, as, as social yeah. workers, um, Sony goes and she joins them and she becomes radicalized while her best friend, Millie, ends up as a domestic servant, right? Um, and, and I think I encountered characters yes. like that, but equally there were those characters who were, lit, were just moving in and out of the guerrilla armies as though they were going to stay with an uncle or an aunt. So it wasn't, you know, that it wasn't a desperation necessarily that was driving them. Yes. And for me, this was very interesting because um, some 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 youth I met, like Coley, Coley who's a was central character, he, you know, he had mm. spent some time working in brick factories, and his brother had done so as well, some years, and then in other years, he was moving with the Naxal um, armies. So it was very interesting to find that actually this movement had embedded itself so uh, intimately amongst the amongst the local populations in these forests that um, people felt comfortable just going in and out of of the movement. Of course, this was a big problem for the leadership, the yes. idealistic leaders yes. like yes. Gyanji, yeah. um, uh, to have an army that was all, always so mobile and. This is a point that you make, and I'd like you to speak a little bit more about it uh, 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 to outline to the audience that you know you 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 depict four models of uh, uh, to four models to account for reasons why people join the marriage. There's a grievance model, there's a greed model, there's a coercion model, and 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 the, and, and the grievous model sort of shades into identity, which is Arundhati Roy's big point about. The current Maoist movement, she says, it's actually not a Maoist movement; it's an it's an Adivasi movement. Mm. Um, but you add something extra to it. You add the small change of interaction between humans as equals. Do 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 you want to speak more about, like a little bit about each of these models, and then tell us what you bring the add the added extra that you bring to it? Because that added extra that you bring to it is very important for the moral imperatives of a novelist. So if when you speak something, then I can... Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, you put it very well. I mean, the, in, in such contexts, you often get, um, you know, whether it's a shining path. I, I read a lot about the shining path before I did the fieldwork for the Naxites or the Nepali Maoists. You get these different models, which are basically that... Oh, it, you know, people. It's the, these these um, these rebels are basically, um, you know, uh, people join them for utilitarian reasons. That you know, they're getting some money, they're being paid to join, they're getting some kind of personal benefit. So that's one set of reasons, which is the greed idea of um, insurgency. Or you have the kind of grievance uh, notion, which is people are, as you were suggesting, so um, desperate, uh, want to change uh, change their situation because of the injustice and inequalities they see and this is the, the rebel cause answers you know that imperative and they and, and hence they join or there's of course a very prominent um, narrative on India which is uh, and has been in other parts of the world that people are just stuck between uh, between two armies or, or forced in the or forced to join 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 the next sides um, and and yeah the grievance model has turned in recent years into an identity politics model which is that these are all Adivasi populations 
Christians that um, they're all fighting against their Latin grabs and you know they have no other s solution. And yes, the Naxlite movement is an Adivasi movement, which is what Arundhati Boy has has suggested uh, and has said. Um, but I, I think what I found really interesting was that here's this movement with this really long history and these people who have been underground for 30 years who know who actually when they came to these areas knew nothing about these tribal people and there they are living with uh, the tribal people and, and I found it quite extraordinary because it, it, it's I saw them living almost like an anthropologist would um, amongst the populations. And um, so people who were vastly different from them, who weren't educated, who were coming from you know, the lower ends of the social scale in, in India, and, um, or who were considered low, uh, um, uh, outside the caste system even. And they had managed to actually um, embed themselves and, 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 and win over a lot of support. Uh, so for me, the question became, you know, why and how did they manage to do that? And uh, yes, they did address things like they chased out the, poli the police and the forest guards who used to exploit the Adivasis, and they chased out, you know, criminal gangs or people who local people considered criminals, and um, they became the kind of state in the area. But what was really different about their interactions with most of the state officials who came into the area, who were also from the similar middle class background, was the ways in which. Um, they paid attention to all the small things mm. of life, you know, how a house is entered or um, how one speaks to people, and the intimate, the, uh, the everyday intimacies of life and how they, well, respected people, treated them with a dignity which, you know, many outsiders hadn't. And this was, um, and I think this came from the idea, ideal of communism. Absolutely. So communism wasn't, wasn't only just the, the the idea that they were, that the society that they were fighting for, but affected the ways in which everyday life was structured amongst the Naxalites. So they tried really hard to declass themselves and get rid of the, their class backgrounds and decast themselves and get rid of their um, caste back, you know, their, their caste baggage, uh, and um, and and yeah, treat uh, people on equal exactly. terms. And this became, I think this gained them a lot of, uh, yeah, get, enabled them to enter Adivasi households and, um, and win over a lot of uh, hearts. Um, but uh, also, I think, as I talk about in the book, became an Achilles heel in a way yeah. uh, at the uh, yes, uh, because they, they developed family and kinship networks amongst the Adivasi armies and that was both the strength of the movement but then also um, what right. undermines it in, in many ways. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, 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 yeah. I find that idea very, very moving and very convincing as well, the fact that it's this small change of how people behave with each other that, it, that, is, that marks the turning point in how they are accepted, whether they're brought in or kept outside. And um, I, mean, I mean, I've always thought that uh, when I was asked, why is your second novel named after a German film? And I said, well... <laughs> The, the idea, the, 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 the title is taken from a line in uh, 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 an American novel by the mighty James Salter, and it's a novel about the disintegration of a marriage. Uh, it's called Light Years, and the line is, um, 
How can we imagine what our lives should be without the elimination of the lives of others? Uh, um, I find that should very interesting. There's a certain prescriptive charge to the word should. There's a morally prescriptive charge. Like, how can you imagine what a life should be without the elimination of the lives of others? And you can ask yourself, uh, like, like a simple question, like, what is a novel? A novel is a work about the lives of others. And I feel the fact that the, that the Naxalite leaders went and did that and became the others that they were trying to like penetrate, or in some ways the societies they were trying to penetrate, and then they ended up becoming one of them in some ways, I think. Um, but I, I mean, this, this actually brings me to something very interesting about your work. You know, um, you, you did this sort of long ethnographic work, um, Malinowski's uh, Participant Observation, uh, uh, um, and, and there seems to be a, a, a kind of join with that kind of idea and Mao's idea uh, uh, later made famous by Che as um, uh, living like uh, living with the fish like other fish in the sea. That's what said. And you know, participant observation is not that much different from that 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 idea. Do you do you want to say something about that that very inherent join, that very inherent intersection between these two two ideas, and 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 what it gave you? I mean, while while reading your book. I was constantly full of admiration and, and some kind of wonder about the, the, the depth of the embeddedness. Uh, and you know, there are several instances in the book where um, you, know, you call Somari your sister, for example. Mm. And it came very naturally in the thing. And I did not think you were doing that as a kind of rhetorical flourish. It felt natural that you should say, my sister, Somari. Mm. So these were things that, that, that I think a novelist is always quite alert to, these, mm. these little yeah, there things. There are things that are not at all unusual for anthropologists. You oh, know, I'm sure right, there are many right, anthropologists right. in this room who, who have sisters and brothers right, uh, right. and aunts and uncles and fathers and mothers, you know, some probably in several different field sites. Right, you know? right. um, but, um, yeah, no, but that really struck me, the, uh, you know, the, that Mao Zedong's uh, a gorilla must swim uh, in the sea as a fish, uh, yeah. uh, swim amongst the people as a fish swims, swims, in, swims in the sea. And, um, and participant and the similarities with participant observation and I actually in, eventually went to write a, an article about this but there are um, you know because they were very much living in 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 the areas as I suggested area as a, a, earlier as an anthropologist would um, the whole Maoist philosophy was you know based on from the masses to the masses so you have your ideas about um, you know how change should be brought about, but you constantly test that by going down to the masses and learning from the masses, right. and then rethinking yes. what you're you're doing. And I think there's parallels between that and how we think about yes. theory and how we produce theory um, in anthropology, where you're constantly testing your ideas and you know retesting them and 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 uh, the and emerging with new theories based on the education uh, that you you receive from the ground you know um, but of course there's a big difference because at the end of the day um, these were people who were changing the world uh, and in an active party seeking to do that and here we are teaching students and you know um, mainly uh, mainly working as academics but what was also really important I think the difference 
one of the big things that was limiting in terms of the, the Naxalites was the party structure, which although, although encourages from the masses to the masses, in, in, in effect, um, you know, things emerged from the ground, but they couldn't, they couldn't allow that to be really properly discussed uh, within, within the party to change their structures. And that's maybe one reason why a movement mm. like this has mm. kind of stayed together against all odds, but it's also one of the problems of it. Yes. Um, but yes. I, I, I'm wondering actually whether um, it might be good, a good moment to hear from your, from your book. Uh, you want me to read? Or... Okay. <laughs> no, she, um, um, I'm going to go up to the lectern, actually. Okay. Is that okay? Yeah. Um, I'm going to read from just five pages from, um, you know, um, Alpa mentioned these two characters in the book uh, called Millie and Sonny. Millie is the central character of the fourth uh, segment of this book. She's taken out of school at the age of eight and sent to work as a domestic servant, as they're still called in India. Um, and her friend, her childhood friend, Sony, she becomes radicalized and becomes a Maoist guerrilla. Oh, this is very far away. Hold this slides. The youngest daughter of the woman from behind whose legs Millie had watched the mutilation of Budhuva, was a dearest friend. The girl's name was Sunny, and she and her family lived in the same village. The girls played in the dust together, ran along the narrow hours of the rice fields, chasing each other, sat under mango trees to shelter from the rain, and made up songs about the way raindrops or downpour sounded on the leaves. Jim, 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 it goes, Millie said. No, Jum, 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 said Sunny. They climbed trees and made reeds out of the long leaves of palms. They discovered that the stem of the papaya tree was hollow. They dipped it in soapy water and blew bubbles. They saved tamarind stones after eating the ripe fruit of the trees in the summer, or tamarind, pick, tamarind pickle at other times during the year, cleaned them and put them to use in invented games. They lay on the ground, balanced a stone each on their foreheads exactly between their eyes, and a garland of the brown seeds around their necks and kept very still so that the stones didn't fall off and pretended that they were both brides decked out on their wedding day. The girl from whose neck a stone slid off first would be the first to get married. There were no shop-bought toys or dolls, but they made do with painted clay birds that someone in the village made. They had dried palm leaves for tails and ears and little carts made of sticks and dried sal leaves and garishly painted carved sal wood or bamboo creatures. Humans, animals, once even a bus with wheels. They had to be told what it was because they had never seen a bus before. They played with leaves and stones, arranging them in pretty patterns, sometimes strewing flower petals around them and singing the songs from Baparab. They sat next to each other in the local school, which was three miles away and a few meters off a tar-metalled road in the middle of open land with nothing around it except a long, low knoll on the horizon to the east, a few trees dotting the red earth, and some bushes, scrub, and other vegetation. Children from all the villages within a radius of 10 or 12 miles had to walk to and back from this school, the only one in this particular block of the district. 
They didn't mind. It didn't occur to them that something such as minding existed. This was the way things were and they knew nothing else. Sometimes a long journey in all seasons meant that they missed class, but this was infrequent. There was certainly a lot less absenteeism among students than among the teachers. The school was painted pink and had two large rooms, a blue kitchen shed where the students' midday meal was cooked, and an outhouse which was the latrine and had a wooden door that did not reach all the way to the floor. It had to be shut with a hook lock which had begun to rust. This toilet was a new thing for all the children because their homes didn't have any. Everyone did his business in the open and they had to be taught by the teacher how to use it. Much embarrassed giggling had accompanied these demonstrations. Millie and Sony had been the most helplessly tittering of the lot. Everyone between the ages of 7 and 11 sat in one classroom and the older children in the other. They sat on the floor, cross-legged, facing the teacher on the blackboard. There weren't enough chatais for all of them, anywhere between 30 and 45, so some had to sit on the bare concrete. Sometimes, as often as 15 or 20 days a month, the children walked to the school and the teacher didn't show up, or she did and left around noon. Over time, this had the effect of thinning student numbers too. Who would want to walk so far, especially during the merciless summer and monsoon, to sit in a room waiting, waiting until it was time to walk back again? And when they tenaciously continued to come regularly, it wasn't because of the lessons, there weren't many, but for other reasons. A close friend or two, an escape from being sent to the fields to work, or simply a way of keeping at bay the weight of endless days of nothing. And the biggest reason of all, the one square meal they got in school, regardless of whether the teacher was present or absent. But Millie's case was slightly different. She had her best friend not very far away in the village. There was no need to do a round trip of over two hours every day to be with her. True, the midday meal was a big attraction, but there was something bigger than this. Millie was on fire to study to learn to read and write, to go to a bigger school where she would get to wear a uniform and carry a book, pile of books in her hand or in a bag, books she would be able to read easily from cover to cover and retain in her head everything they contained. But barely two years, but after barely two years of this school, Millie, at the age of eight, was taken out and sent by her mother to work as a housemaid in distant Doomri, eight hours by bus from her village. The family desperately needed the money, and her mother, who tried to hold everything together, couldn't see how they were to hold off starvation if Millie wasn't sent away. She was going to need every paisa from those extra 200 rupees a month that were going to be Millie's wages. Her mother had nine mouths to feed, herself, seven children, and a drunkard of a husband, who instead of earning money was a drain on what little they could pool together. They struggled to raise the bus fare, which was 125 rupees the money necessary for a return ticket for her father or one of her older brothers to accompany Millie was beyond their means, so they had to wait until someone else was traveling to Dumri. Arrangements were, arrangements were made for Millie to be met when she got off the bus. This was all done without her knowledge. Not because her mother thought that the girl would be upset, but because the idea of consulting a daughter on a decision already reached by her mother was unimaginable. Millie was told two days before she was scheduled to go. 
At first, she thought she was going to see a town far, far away, a different world altogether, so there was some excitement mingled with the fear that she felt, excitement especially about traveling by bus, which she had never done before. How long will it take to get there, she asked. Six, seven, eight hours, her mother said. Billy did not have any notion of time to understand what this actually meant. She only knew that it was a very long time. Oh, that's very far. When will I come back? After how many hours? You won't come back. You will stay there, her mother said. Stay? Stay where? Many days? Millie was baffled. Even after the situation was explained to her that she was going to be living in the home of a couple in that faraway town and a consolatory lie that she was going to, to come home every month added to the mix, it only dawned on Millie by slow degrees that she was being sent away to work. She looked at the healed stump of Budua's arm, its end gathered together in a tiny knot-like pucker, like the kind she had once seen at the end of an inflated balloon, and realized that it would look a little bit different when she saw it next time. And something went in a sweeping movement inside her child's chest, emptying it. And school? She asked in a small voice, studying? Nothing doing, her mother replied impatiently, studying. What good, is, what good is that for a girl? You'll be more useful bringing in some money. Now shut up. The pictures in her school book with the words written large under them, anak, glasses, kachori, stuffed pastry, titli, butterfly, aurat, woman, gilhari, squirrel, went through her head. There would be no more books, no more pictures. She looked at the faces of her brothers and sisters, Budhuas was turned away. Three of them were too little to understand what was going on. The faces of the other two looked small, or so it appeared in the shadow-casting flame of the sooty hurricane lamp. Then a different thought struck her, Sony. When Millie said that she was going to a different country to earn money and that she was going to come back every month in a bus bearing gifts of tinsel, sweets, pictures, and red, blue, green, and yellow ribbons, all things she considered beautiful and desirable, it wasn't at all clear that Sonia understood the full implication of what her friend was saying. There were no goodbyes, no promises or expectations to see each other soon because there was no understanding of absence and not having each other's company. There was no wrench, no exchange of tokens or mementos. The day's play ended as it did on any other ordinary day. The next day, when boarding the bus, Millie was eager to sit at a window because Budua had told her that she could see the world, the trees, the houses, the fields, all moving past her in the opposite direction when the bus was in motion. She sat at the window and looked out. The bus was stationary, still boarding. She looked out at Budua standing beside her mother, who had a toddler on her hip and one of the younger brothers holding on to her hand. Millie saw her father with his crumpled face. Someone was selling bananas. Budua brought one, bought one, reached his hand in, and gave it to Millie. The bus was beginning to fill up rapidly. Something shifted, and she began to cry. Not as a child cries with its innocent and skinless complaint against the world, but as an adult, silently, trying to keep it all in, only just beginning to understand the weight of the world.
from that, can we thread through the, the gender? Because the depictions of the limitations, oops, sorry, the limitations of those lives is so sad. I mean, that's the, a story of she's trapped, but she, she has so much hope at the beginning. And that's so different to your gender descriptions of the women who move in and out of, of the groups. They have more freedom. They have a lot more freedom, it seems to me. Do you think that's the case? I think Millie, in, the, in, the, in this novel, I think Millie makes her own agency. You think she finds it in that cramped space? She finds it not in the cramped space, but later when she goes away to Bombay and, and she's kept as a virtual slave in, in a yeah, middle-class yeah. home. And she breaks free and she uh, marries someone, lives in a slum. Um, she makes something of her life. She, she educates her children. And this is a very interesting Indian model mm. that um, you educate your children to, so that they can have a better life than you do. Yeah. I, 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 am yeah. a, I, I am a beneficiary of that, that kind of, that model of thinking. Yeah, so, yeah me too. And, 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 and I find it, and, and it's something that I think is, uh, has fallen away in the West, I feel. Education is no longer the, the vital thing that it was for me in, in India and stuff. So, so I think Millie finds her way to, uh, her, I, I think hers is the only, a hopeful story in 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 in, in this novel. It's like hope. It, it is that traditional model, though, isn't it? You invest in your children because you have no means of escaping from what you're trapped in yourself. Yes. Whereas, and that's about present future in a way. Whereas, I think in in your descriptions, there's much more hope in the present. They seem Not for women. The, well, there's some as they they seem to move in and out. Do you think they get trapped? Well, I think a big part of, of the story of Night March, or at least where I end up, or what I'm trying to show, is how this movement for revolutionary change, which you know draws in in some parts of the country, some people have claimed you know 40% of the soldiers are, are, are women. In fact, is seeped with mm. patriarchy, and although it's had the most incredible women leaders who've, um, you know, in their own rights, be, been, you know, feminist theoreticians, you know, at a, at a global mm. scale, people like Anuranda Gandhi, uh, in the practice uh, of patriarchy within the movement is so strong. Uh, so people like Anuradha Gandhi, who was one of the big leaders, who, who's now no longer, she died of malaria in 2007, you know, she, people like her took the, to the, took the perspective that you have to fight patriarchy from within, but, um, you know, so you can't leave and, and, but, but, but that's to make the point that patriarchy was really bad within the movement. And, and in the, in, 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 in the case of Adivasi women, I think it's a particularly, um, tragic story because one of the most extraordinary things, um, that I, felt over the years I've lived in Adivasi villages is the relative gender equality that exists within um, within Adivasi communities. So I'm not saying that they're you know totally egalitarian or that there isn't any hierarchy and there isn't any patriarchy. And, um, but 
you know, being even being a, a female researcher in these areas, I think, was much easier than Up having safer, absolutely, ha- yeah, yeah, having been yeah. a. To, yeah. Then I wouldn't have been able to do the same research in the plains of Bihar, where no. patriarchy is very dominant. So Adivasi women, you know, go out to work. They control the purse in the way that you know um, um, Adivasi uh, women in many other parts of Indian society don't. They um, they partake the things that I, uh, you know, really were so striking for me is Batuk and drinking alcohol, drink alcohol uh, you know, on equal yeah. terms yeah. with men. Um, if you don't get on with your husband, you can leave him, you know, um, premarital and postmarital. Uh, affairs were, you know, not the norm, uh, not the, not... Um, they were accepted, weren't they? Well, yeah, I mean, or you get reincorporated into society, not, you're not, you're not a complete outcast. Um, uh, so, yeah, so these, uh, and, and here you have this movement for revolutionary change saying, let's bring gender equality to the area, you know, and, mm. and in fact, um, probably giving rise to much more patriarchal attitudes amongst Adivasi men who went to live with the movement and who grew up within the movement. And those are some of the kind of contradictions mm. that I try to, you know, show. It felt, yeah. it felt to me not dissimilar to lots of kind of ethnographies of working class life in the UK even, where you have much more egalitarian communities. Um, but when researchers go into them, they assume that they're not. A bit like the army assume that they're not and they need educating. Mm-hmm. And that model that these people who are living completely different relations of sociality need somehow educating by people who aren't mm-hmm. is extraordinary. So it, that real class difference struck me in both of your novels. Uh, both of your novels. Yours reads like a novel even. Mm-hmm. Right? Would, you, would you like to read a little bit yeah. to give would us just a flavour of Tell of, us a bit oh, more. I've actually got some pictures to show as well. I don't. They should be up here. Is anybody responsible for the slides here? I think now. Thank you. So this is um, night three, page 145, chapter 12. I knew I had no choice but to fully place my trust in the guerrillas and concentrate on mastering the art of night walking. We heard what sounded like crashing waves. Rolling in one after another, they got louder. Mammoth trucks hurtling down a highway. From behind a bamboo thicket, we watched them thunder past. They're conveying coal, whispered Gyanji, the high-caste senior leader in front of me in the platoon. Beasts on a silent mission, tearing through the country in the darkness of the night night. They were the latest face of the development mission that for centuries had been looting the forests, land and water from the Adivasis, India's indigenous people. The new developments promised barbed wire fences, security guards, and mining mafia rising around new migrants, keeping the locals out. For the moment, however, there were some hiccups curtailing the expansion of the mining companies. They couldn't easily access the land. 
Human rights operations, human rights activists claimed that this was the real reason behind Operation Green Hunt. In the name of fighting the guerrillas, the government was covering the region with military barracks to make life brutally unpleasant, accusing locals who did not comply of being Maoists so that eventually they would either be forced to leave or could simply be arrested or killed. It was a slow clearing of the ground, a slow purging of the people. The last of the trucks sped past. We ran across, one after another, all 29 of us. The paved road beneath felt cold and hard. We walked for at least another five hours before we finally reached the outskirts of the village where we were to have our dinner. Two runners had been sent ahead of the platoon to ensure one plate of food was kept aside from different houses so that all the fighters could eat. We congregated in the forest by the village while it was decided who would eat at which house. Now you've truly become a gorilla. It's the trademark of a soldier to be able to fall asleep anywhere, anytime. Gyanji's chuckle woke me up. I followed him to a mud house in the middle of the main hamlet. Lal Salam greeted an old woman holding a kerosene lamp as she opened the heavy wooden door. Gyanji was apologetic about the lateness of our visit, but she said it was no trouble at all. We sat in the front room of the house while Kohli, my bodyguard, a sweet 16-year-old Adivasi, and Gyanji's bodyguard remained outside to keep watch. I wondered whether Gyanji knew about Kohli's reasons for joining the guerrillas. I knew the story the Naxalites liked to tell. It was that the Adivasis had little choice but to take up arms to defend themselves. Yes, sighed Gyanji. Boys like Kohli are wonderful. The problem is that they are so sweet and innocent, they just come and go as they please, moving back and forth between their villages and the guerrilla armies. Although the Naxlites did not permit it, the boys needed to quench their thirst, he acknowledged. I bit my tongue. I didn't like his high caste prejudice. The flip side of the image of the wildness, savagery and barbarism of the Adivasi was an idea of their innocence, vulnerability and gullibility. Our views about alcohol were also not in sync. The Naxalites forbade any form of alcohol consumption or production. But homemade alcohol in villages like those of Lalgaon where I lived was a crucial part of Adivasi sociality. Rice beer, haria and wine made from the mahuafat flour were sacred. Men and women together equally partook in their consumption. Guests were welcomed with haria or mahua. There was even an old saying that only enemies were given one cup, friends were served two or more. The Adivasi culture of drinking was very different from that of most Indian households in which men would rarely admit publicly that they consumed alcohol, but in fact spent fortunes on expensive Indian-made spirits such as Royal Challenge whiskey or Old Monk rum, imbibed behind closed curtains without women present, and consumed quickly and guiltily. I couldn't help myself. I understand that you can't have drunken soldiers in times of war when the enemy is at your threshold, but perhaps every now and again you should brew alcohol in the armies, Adivasi style, for special occasions, and just let everybody have a bit of fun, I suggested. Gyanji retorted, you can't mummify your Adivasis as they are. 
Whether you like it or not, it is inevitable that their cultures will be obliterated with development. There was a fundamental difference between our perspectives. For a movement so keen on building an egalitarian world, ultimately their path seemed to be based on ignoring the forms of egalitarianism that were already alive and well in Adivasi communities. The problem, he said, was that young Adivasi men often went away from the squads and did not return. Then the Naxalites felt they had failed in delivering a political education. People come to us from very different backgrounds, he said, but they need to be educated to recognize the violence and inequities and to take on not just the world around them, but also the structures and injustices that they could not see. If there is only continuity rather than the ability to imagine change and act towards it, we might just as well be bees, Gyanji said. We rinsed our plates and waited for the others to finish eating. The silent act of pouring water from the jug for each other seemed to wash away some of the tension between us. But I was full of questions I knew Gyanji would not like to hear. Might the Naxalite ability to provide a home away from home for the Adivasi youth not only be a strength, but also represent a weakness, an Achilles heel? As though reading my thoughts, Gyanji, who was playing with a mobile phone, exclaimed, I knew it. He showed me the phone, a pale-skinned woman with long, dark hair, a pouting mouth, and a slinky black top, which barely covered her breasts, was staring at us. Another picture of a semi-naked woman, woman, a man and woman kissing. I couldn't make out whether they had any clothes or not. Soft porn. The phone belonged to Vikas, a rather macho Adivasi platoon commander. I took it from him. It's just as I suspected, Gyanji said. At that moment, Vikas walked through the door. What's all this? Gyanji thundered. Vikas looked sheepishly at the ground. He said a local contractor had given him the phone. The Naxalites viewed pornography as part of the spread of a feudal imperialist culture that used sex as a weapon to divert the youth from the problems and struggles of society. But Gyanji seemed most upset about what it implied about the kind of men that Vikas must be mingling with outside the guerrilla armies. Before Gyanji could confront Vikas further about his phone, Gyanji's bodyguard walked in with Kohli. I looked at all of them. If he stayed long enough with the gorillas, what would happen to Kohli? Had Vikas once been like Kohli? Or would Kohli turn into another Gyanji? You, you, you catch the contradictions of the, uh, uh, I mean, the tiger who can't change his stripes, the middle class amongst the Adivasis, very well. I think, you know, Ganji, despite having been embedded amongst these people and being like a fish amongst the other fish in the sea, he still cannot let go of that upper caste middle class, like, and he comes from an upper caste middle class background, and he holds on to that in some ways. And I think this, this is his uh, shadow area, his blind spot. And I don't think he understands this contradiction. And, he, and, he, and he, you, you get to the heart of that very well. Um, I particularly liked your distinction between Indian male middle class drinking 
and drinking as just a way of life, mm. which is much more organic and, and, and healthier and, and uh, more uh, less furtive and, and you know, out in the open. Um, tell me why, uh, I mean, I mean I'd, I'd, I'd like to know about all the people a little bit more because they seem like characters in the novel, Gyanji, Kohli, Vikas, Prashant, Somwari, all these people. Um, do, do you feel particularly close to any one of them? Like, you know, novelists are not supposed to feel close to any of their characters, but they do, of course they do. But did you um, t- tell me a little more about I mean, I found the human angle of the book so engaging and so endearing. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, you know, yes, of course I feel um, close to all of them in different ways. Let me pick the person that I felt least close to. Because. Uh, because, because. You know? yeah. because over the years he's grown on me. Um, you know, so Vikas was actually, um, uh, so he was a young Adivasi foot soldier, probably like Kohli, I'm assuming at some point in time, who was my Adivasi bodyguard, who I talk about, who was, who actually ran into the guerrilla armies um, uh, when I found him there, uh, because he'd had a fight with his father about a glass of spilt milk. His father owned a tea shack and um, Cody was working there and they'd had this argument and, you know, and uh, that uh, he and he then tried to go and live with the guerrilla squads um, uh, and he was dissuaded by the, the zonal commander um, of the area because he was good friends with his father. He knew that his father needed it at him at home. But then eventually Kohli still went and lived with the with the guerrilla squads. And um, and, you know, he was following a path that many other Adivasis had uh, in, in, in the area, which is, um, you know, a fight with the parents, a love affair, um, something not quite right at home, and they'd, they'd go off and, and spend time with the squads and, and then maybe come back at some point. But some people stayed on, and Vikas was one of those, one of those people. And um, when... Um, you know, on on the march, he's the one that I disliked the most. You know, I was constantly having this feeling that he was uh, he 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 wasn't confirming to you know what the slides would wanted would have wanted him to do. He carried this mobile phone. He didn't seem to know the path. He at one point led us astray. I thought. And I thought that this is exactly, you know, what happens. He's a police informer and he's probably, you know, setting out to um, destroy this, uh, you know, leading us into a trap. Uh, and there's points on the march where, where I'm really worried about him. And eventually, it, it, you know, I don't want to give it all away, but for those of you who haven't read it, but he does eventually um, defect and set out, a, you know, go off on a gang with some of the best rifles and some of the youth. And um, and set up a gang, extorting money um, from from the local coal mines, and his main aim becomes to kill Gyanji. Um, and uh, you've just given it away. <laughs> well, there's still there's still more. I haven't given it all away. But uh, but anyway, so this is like this is this character, you know, this Adivasi foot soldier. And so over the time I was there, I was really like worried. You know, I, I really didn't like this guy. You know, he was always trying to play his macho man on me and, you know, once came and uh, Adley, actually, he, I first got to know him because he interrogated me yes. uh, in the village. He came with his platoon and he didn't know I'd been living there and he 
he, he brought me uh, out of, you know, I went to serve him food, rice and dal in the night um, as they, you know, the, as, as they were taking from many of the houses. And some wari, the woman I lived with, had made some rice and dal and she said, let's go and give them some. And she heaped the plate full because, you know, they're hungry. She thought that they're thirsty and hungry and they'll need food and, you know, they're just Adivasi boys. So I went over and Vikas basically um, was the platoon commander of this platoon and he then realized there was somebody who wasn't, didn't belong who was there and he called me and he interrogated me into the night and he told me stories about people who in Chhattisgarh had been killed because they thought, you know, outsiders who were spies and he tried to terrify me and... Uh, and then, uh, but over, you know, over the time he realized that you know many of the other leaders, more senior to him, knew me, and um, and he found me in their camp the next day uh, where they were making landmines, and so he, he he then tried to kind of you know act as this macho man man and always offer me things, food and uh, oil and various different things. Um, so, I, but I, I was very irritated by him the whole time. Um, but over the years, um, I've actually grown to be much more sympathetic to him as a person because, you know, he was, um, he, although I don't agree with the path he took, but he was just like all the other boys in the area, you know. He, he eventually, the Naxalites actually gave him access to a wider world that he didn't have inside the village. They introduced him to technology, to guns. They introduced him to making money. Uh, and he wanted, you know, a house and, um, uh, a, well, a middle-class life, you know, uh, that people like Ganji had, of course, sacrificed and given up um, to go and live in the jungles. But he, he wanted what most ordinary Indians wanted. And, in fact, it was my, some of my students who, when they read the first draft of the book, I think actually Meghna and Thomas, who were basically saying to me, yeah, but, 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 but you know, when, I, when they read the draft of the book and they're like, why have you painted this character in such a negative light, you know, and, and, and they were like, well, he's just, he's just like all the other, you know, Indian youth. And I think that was a real um, moment for me, um, having that discussion. Um, uh, and, and over the years I've become, you know, I, I've not come to see him as such a foe, even though he was a foe and, you know, and, um, yeah. Now at this moment, I'm going to open it out for questions from the audience, if that's okay. Yeah. Yep, because we've got half an hour, or just under. Ah, hand up over there already, so the microphones will be passed to you, if you can say who you are. And just let me know if you... Hello, Alpa. Is this on? Yep. Hello? Yep. Uh, my name is Robert Wallace. I'm a journalist. Um, Alpa, a few years ago we had a discussion about um, whether there was still a space in... Uh, rapidly industrializing India for a traditional Adivasi way of life that is environmental and could be a model for, a, a different model for India from the uh, mining and industrial model that it's pursuing to the end. And um, you were pretty, um, uh, ne not negative, but you felt that was uh, highly un unlikely in the uh, current economic and political environment. I just wonder if you still feel that way or if you've uh, modified that at all, e either with or without the uh, Maoist. Yep. And do you want to pass? Sorry, we just... <laughs> yeah. 
Do you want to ask if we do three questions and then we can, you can both take them, yeah? Sure. Hello, my, my name is Josephine Harrible. I'm from the Workers' Institute and I've been... I'm really sorry, but we can't, can't hear you very well. Yeah. Yeah. Is it on? Is it on? Okay. Yeah, if you can speak into it, yes, yeah, that would be closer. great. Hello, my name is Josephine Harrible. I'm a member of the Workers' Institute of Marxism, Leninism, Mao Thought, and I've been a member of a communist collective right in the very heart of England, in London, you know, for the last 40 years. And I'd just like to, because we're talking about revolutionaries in India, I'd like to talk about Arvind and Balakrishnan because he's a revolutionary right here in London. And at this moment, he's a political prisoner in the jails in England. Um, he's been framed up and unjustly imprisoned. So I'd just like to say about his work, he, he's taken revolutionary sorry. struggles to a much higher level. He established an educational institute to the, in to the, the heart of the Brixton in London and built a revolutionary stable base area in London, the first of its kind ever to be built anywhere in a city in the world. You know, I just want to clarify this because there's been so a mountain of lies have been told about him and I'm telling you the fact, the truth about it. Uh, this is part and parcel of your discussion because he's taken the struggle to a higher level to the struggle right in the heart of the evil old world right here in London. Thank you. And is there one more question down here first and then we'll go back there. Yeah, yeah. And then we'll take them together. Is it this one here? Yeah. Or this one? <laughs> this one, this one. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. Hi, um, this is Professor Shah. I, you alluded to like uh, the issue of caste within the Naxalite movement, and I wanted to just ask a little more about that because there are a lot of polemics about this in India usually. And um, do you think that like the criticism that was made in the 60s, say, of it being a very uh, upper caste leadership, is that still true today? And Okay, so if we could take those questions. Alpa first, you want to go with the, um, that is there a higher level of struggle than the one you're, you're involved in? Mm -hmm. Is there an alternative? And the class cast question. Yeah. No um, yeah I'm sorry, I don't know about the higher level of struggle, but I, I, I'll, I'll, I'll look at the other kinds of struggles in relation to Adivasis. Um, Robert, yeah, I mean, I, I actually feel even more uh, <laughs> disenchanted right now than I did some years ago when we spoke because the form uh, of development that's taking place, um, the ways in which voices are being silenced from, uh, from, from the Adivasi areas um, that I'm talking about, um, the possibility of another kind of world that might emerge from Adivasi communities. While I'd love to believe in that, um, uh, it seems to me that the forces are set so against against that, and there's so you know the the, the Indian state, the multinational corporations. I mean, you know the story um, very well, and and you know the places I worked in Jharkhand are. Um, uh, um, Still, there aren't minerals immediately underneath that bit of ground. But in other parts of the country, like Chhattisgarh, as you, I'm sure, have followed, we've seen the entire burning of some villages, mm. populations displaced. Uh, human rights <coughs> activists came, claimed 350,000 people displaced from their homes. 
um, uh, yeah, uh, and you know, it's a when you have that kind of level of displacement, it's kind of quite, um, uh, yeah, it's chilling uh, to see what kinds of spaces of hope can emerge. But one thing I want to share as, uh, as, as um, in terms of hope, um, so um, thanks to uh, Dalal Ben Babali, who's sitting right in front of you, I've visited um, uh, the, some of the displaced communities that had fled uh, from Chhattisgarh into Telangana, uh, the Adivasi, uh, Adivasis who had fled from, from the Salvajudam insurgency, and they had recreated villages in the middle of the forest. And uh, although the visits, my visit was very short, what was very striking about it was how um, these the Adivasi communities had actually recreated their entire villages, including their gods and goddesses had, you know, got places in the village and, and the, the villages looked, you know, there were houses for uh, the people but also houses for their chickens and goats and so a whole community had been reproduced and what, another thing, uh, a few years later, or no, the year later I visited um, the Santals in the tea plantations of um, of Assam, where they had been taken long ago, uh, in the you know from the late 1800s to pluck tea, and what was also extraordinary about that visit was how um, how this, the landscape of those tea plantations was so much like the Adivasi villages back in Jharkhand. So these were people who had no land, uh, but whatever they had been given by the tea plant planters, they had got livestock, um, they had got chickens, they had their devistans, you know, their 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 sacred groves, their sacred places. So they, this whole way of living, they made mahua and haria, you know, if they could get mahua, but haria more commonly because I was available and they drank it like they drank in Jharkhand. And this is after, you know, years of, uh, of, of having been displaced. So there was something about uh, that was, I mean, these trips were very short, like literally like three days, four days, but there was something that was... Um, uh, quite astonishing. So I, I, I just I want to leave on that note of hope uh, about the ability to create community um, and spirit and a more egalitarian spirit against all the doom that's out there and that's really literally burning down um, these communities. And do you have a response to the class class question? Sorry, yes, we'll the class class question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm sure Neil will have things that yeah, he wants to say about the class class things. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, um, uh, my understanding, and, and uh, um, uh, Alpa will correct this, uh, is that the, the, the late 60s tribe of uh, Maoism was much more uh, a middle class, upper caste movement. But now it's uh, exactly the opposite. Um, in the last 25 years, I mean, you know, you know, caste has always been India's uh, uh, dirtiest. Uh, I'm not going to call it secret because it's not a secret at all. But uh, it's 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 the worst thing in a in in a society that's um, uh, plagued with many terrible things. Um, what what we are now seeing, and this makes me hopeful, actually, we're actually seeing a bottom-up movement 
for uh, uh, a bottom-up, like fight for rights. So I remember a middle-class person saying to me, yes, these people have been oppressed now, but now these people are very aware of their rights. They all talk about their rights, you know. He was outraged that these people should be talking about their rights. I thought, well, something good is happening in that case, that they, at, at least in this conversation about rights, we are actually now seeing more Dalit writing in all kinds of vernaculars and stuff, whereas writing about the lower caste has always been, mostly been a very middle class thing in, you know, people like Prem Chand, uh, 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 Mulkraj Anand, they're all middle class, western educated, upper caste writers. Um, whereas, you know, more recently, if you think of someone like Om Prakash Valmiki, uh, uh, if you think of Sujatha Gidla, there, there is, we are now hearing the lit voices and and that I think is is I I, I think India as a country is much more aware of the fact that there is these were the silent people who they thought would just could 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 just be wiped out you know and they are fighting back and they're vocal and they're eloquent and I think it's going to get larger because the pushback against them is of course extreme which self-interested group ever gives up its hold on domination and power when they are challenged. Never. I mean, uh, so, um, but the fact that at least they are not going to be complacent in their domination forever, that kind of gives me, it's a very faint hope, but it's a hope. And I'm not a hopeful person, so. <laughs> there were two more questions down here for, oh, there's a lot, so we'll do. <laughs> there was two here that, that had the hands up first and then one there. So if we do the two on that side first and then over to you there and then we'll... Is, no, this is very new Oh, goodness, there's a is, lot of questions. Is, is this how academics do it? Like you feel the raft of questions and you remember them all? Like, uh, it's the it's the it's the best novelists way. Have, novelists have <laughs> yeah. small brains, so they take questions one uh, by one. But then so. you can only get about four questions in <laughs> half an hour. If you do it enough. this way, you get more okay, in. Right, right. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and then you kind of uh, answer them. Sorry, I'm taking up the time. If you want to start, oh yeah, okay. Yeah. yeah. So this is, um, I guess, it's two questions, but they're they're short and they're related. <laughs> um, the first one is regarding. Uh, the middle class people who are continuing to join the movement, even in small numbers. I was wondering how much of that, in, in your opinion or your experience, comes from um, you know, a, a personal engagement, a desire to see social change, as opposed to a kind of nostalgia for the 60s, the 70s, and a radical moment. You know, how much of it is an actual desire to make change, and how much of it is a desire to exist in some kind of historic golden age of revolutionary activity. And my second question is, um, you know, in this, in this age where we've seen guerrilla movements um, negotiating ends to, the, to, their, uh, to, their, to their movements, like the FARC recently, um, what's the end game for the Naxalites? It, it seems like demographically and politically they have no chance of, of succeeding. So what are their actual end goals and what do the foot soldiers think they're doing and what do the leaders think they're doing? Okay, if you want to pass it forward, and then we'll go. Thank you. Um, my name's Pauline Rowe. I'm a sort of um, community activist, socialist from, from East London. I've, I've got two questions. One comes out of my own experience, that where there's a lot of um, con very conscious of Islamophobia. Um, is there a Muslim dimension to the Naxalites, or what's in it for um, Muslims? And um, 
The other one, I don't know, you may not choose to answer this, but, I sh but was the Indian state and the security apparatus interested in you? And um, how did you cover yourself? This, this is a very interesting yeah, yeah. question. You yeah, were talking one, about one it. One more, and then we'll come back to me. <laughs> just, I'm just really conscious of the time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, here, sorry, it was there right in front. Yeah. Um, hi, my name is Dukita. I'm a student. Um, and I suppose my question is both for Alpa and Neil. Uh, and it's more just within the current political setup of India. Um, I just thought what your thoughts were for the future of the social justice for Adivasis, uh, especially in light of many activists having recently been uh, arrested who had alleged links with Maoists. Uh, and these activists were mostly people who were fighting for the land rights of Adivasis. And so just generally what your thoughts were for the future of these um, Adivasis. Okay, so Neil, do you want to go? No, no, I think Alpa should go first and answer that complex. Okay. I've already forgotten the question. So I'll start with the last one, which is, uh, you know, really kind of pressing, burning. Um, well, what's really sad about what's happening in recent weeks, in the last month and a bit, um, well, actually, it lasts several months, uh, but it's a longer history, of course, is, um, is the way in which, you know, people who are fighting for human rights are being silenced. Um, what's very, what's particularly sad about that is that usually they were speaking for people who, who wouldn't otherwise have had a voice. Uh, so these are, you know, many of them are activists who for decades have been working on behalf of people who who wouldn't be able to fight for themselves in in the way that they can uh, at a national at a national level? So um, uh, yeah, I'm, you know, it's a deeply concerning moment um, that people are being silenced on and being branded as urban naxals under extremely repressive um, laws. Um, what concerns me even more is the fact that there are, you know, 4,000 Adivasis who are in jail in Jharkhand, um, charged as being Naxalites. Um, um, but, um, you know, their, their, their trials are never going to, you know, they're not going to take place for years and years. They, um, uh, they, they're probably going to, you know, youth like Kohli who are going to grow up in jail and see, you know, become, um, young people who, who are going to see into their middle ages in, in, in jail, um, who, who, yeah, um, who, who probably, you know, everybody in these areas was in some way or the other, like, came into contact with the guerrillas. So it, it's like you, you couldn't avoid it. Um, and, um, yeah, and to Chhattisgarh, they you know they say there's 3,000 Adivasis are in, are, are in jail. Um, so, yeah, it's very, it's, although you, there are movements like the rights movements, like the Patalgari movement in Jharkhand, which is, you know, uh, raising awareness of Adivasi rights, those are also being silenced um, with the intense um, police repression. So I think that I'm, I'm hopeful that the government will see that this is undermining their, uh, their cause and their popularity and that um, actually we need to bring real social justice back into the picture. And um, um, so, um, yeah. Do you feel um, hopeful about that? <laughs> I, I, I feel hopeful in, this, like in the historical sense, in this, uh, like the, the state thought it had wiped out revolution in the seven, early 70s. Mm -hmm. 
when Indira Gandhi's Home Minister said he wanted to see a Naxalite hanging from every lamppost. But then it turned out that it hadn't. So even I, I, I find that this is true of a lot of revolutionary movements that often the end is not the end. There's an afterlife mm. somewhere. Mm -hmm. That's the only thing that gives me hope. But, uh, but, but then the Indian state is mightier now than it has been, yeah. and more unified now. Uh, the Indian state is complicated. One, one of the things that's really um, I found so interesting about Gyanji's personal history was that you know, he was studying um, to become an Indian administrative services officer. He was taking these mm. um, exams, you know, and then at some point realized that actually there's a limit to what he could do within the straight state structure. But, you know, the Indian administrative service is full of people like that, you know, who are there because they genuinely wanted to, you know, do good for the do world. Good, yeah. um, uh, and so, and so there are, you know, there are incredible people who are still within the state structures who, mm. who, who are working to fight, you know, the state from within, you know, other aspects of the state from within. Not to say that the state is the answer, no. um, um, but yeah, and movements like the Naxalites. I mean, clearly, right now, you know, what is the future of them? Somebody asked, you know, and um, I think it's very bleak uh, if they carry on with the kinds of, um, you know, with the with the way in which they've been going. Right now, the movement, as Night March kind of tries to show and concludes, it's become focused on using arms uh, against. Uh, Against against the uh, against the forces that are set against it, which are immense, of course, but that has meant that the issues of social justice, of wider social causes, have taken a back seat. And when a movement takes that form, then it's a very dangerous time because you end up, you know, reproducing the violence of the oppressors from within. And um, that's one of the things I'm trying to show uh, in in the book. Um, what worries me is the kind of um, uh, the the, the caste nature of the movement. So although uh, there are many more Adivasi foot soldiers now, there's still a very um, there is a prevalent high caste leadership. It's been very difficult for Adivasis and Dalits to actually gain leadership positions within the movement. And while that has generated lots of positive things, uh, because Dalits in, in Andhra Pradesh, for example, Dalits. Um, felt very um, uh, disillusioned by the ways in which the Naxalite movement in Andhra Pradesh failed to actually take their issues seriously. And that has resulted in the end in Dalit movements and Dalit writers who've emerged, who've actually have a, have a long history of being very close to the movement at one point in time. So, um, so I think that, that one of the conclusions of the book is that actually maybe one of the most democratizing aspects of this movement will, might have been in the long run to give rise to Dalit movements, Adivasi movements, women's movements, precisely because they've A, been brought, you know, they've fought for their rights within this movement, but they've also been disillusioned by the practice of it on the ground. So I think the future is uh, a, a bleak in relation to arms, but also hopeful in the in the ways in which many of these other movements, which are now overground movements, you know, have have arisen and taken hold in so many parts of the country. But look what happened with the Nepali Maoists. You know, I, I think what hap what's happened with Indian Maoists is that they put themselves outside a certain kind of polity conversation, a, a kind of governance conversation, how they should go about it. Meanwhile, the, you, you know, what happened in Nepali, uh, with the Nepali Mayas was that they actually came to power. They did not put themselves entirely out of parliamentary democracy discourse, 
for a while they did. But, I mean, that could be one path to follow. But then India is a bigger, more plural country, so... Yeah, and then Nepalis uh, who work in Nepal also look at how, you know, it's still the government is dominated by high, the high caste, and high now caste, there yeah, are yeah. all these indigenous movements fighting each other. Yeah. So it's, it's not, yeah. It's, no, no, it's not an answer, but I was just... Uh, well, I think both of your books show that nothing's ever straightforward, and, and the beauty of them is the exploration of contradictions, I think, within, within the different movements and within the different issues. Mm -hmm. So I am going to call it to a close, because we have to leave the room, but... They're, both authors are going to be outside with wine, with, with snacks, and with their books to sign. So if you have questions for them, please do ask them outside. Thank you very much. Thank you.